right, everyone, welcome back to Critical Care Scenarios. Um, I am Brandon Odo, back here with Brian Bowling, as always. Hello. Um, we have another good one for you today. Uh, we have with us a guest. This is going to be Dr. Gracia Moy, actually one of our neurointensivists at my institution. Um, Dr. Moy is an assistant professor of neurology and medicine, um, did a neurology residency at UConn here, uh, did our neurocritical care fellowship over at Stanford, and is now back with us as the director of neurocritical care and the co-director of the uh, surgical ICU. So Dr. Moy, welcome. Thank you, thank you for having me. All right, here's the scoop. So you are actually covering the hospital, both for the ICU overnight, and actually you're covering neurology consults as well. There is a staffing issue. Um, and things are going okay, but around 10 p.m., the emergency department calls, and they tell you they have a 27-year-old female down there. She has a history only of some depression and some psoriasis. She takes no meds. But she came to the ED after she was witnessed to develop some shaking movements. It stopped on its own. She's been groggy in the ED. When you go down and evaluate her, she says she doesn't remember this at all. But she is there with her parents, and they say she was visiting them at home, they were having dinner, um, they were arguing about something, and they saw her um, stop talking, she fell from her chair to the ground and probably bumped her head and started shaking with all extremities. They said it lasts, quote unquote, a couple minutes. She came in by ambulance, uh, the ED says that she was pretty sluggish when she arrived, but she was awake. Now she looks fully awake and you don't notice any deficits on exam. So what's your initial thought process working up a patient like this? So um, if, she ha if we have a patient that does not have a history of seizures and this is her first time, we always say that everyone gets a free seizure, one, one free seizure. Um, you know, given that she hit her head, obviously you want to make sure that she didn't have a head bleed, so I would get a head CT. Um, but for the seizure, she's no longer seizing, she's coming around, so I would actually just watch her. Uh, I wouldn't add any medications. If there's no um, other reasons, you know, like, you know, there's there's always a chance that she had a provoked seizure. So, you know, given, you know, we would check her lab, see if there's any electrolyte abnormalities, if there's any toxicology involved. You know, that's the kind of things that I'd be thinking about initially. Okay, so maybe a head CT, um, maybe some routine chemistries, maybe a utox. Right. Okay. So um, they get all of that and it's all pretty unremarkable. So at this point you would maybe consider sending her home or admitting her for some observation? Yeah, if she's coming around, it's I would actually send her home. Um, she can follow up with somebody in the clinic, uh, a neurologist, and maybe get an outpatient EEG. Um, you know, just to advise her that, you know, she should avi avoid any activities that would, you know, if she were to have another one, something that's dangerous, like don't, go in a bathtub alone or don't go swimming alone that kind of thing or climbing a ladder can so. she drive at this point um so it, de it depends on the state that you live in so certain states will if you have an episode of loss of consciousness uh you have to the provider has to report it to the dmv certain states do that certain states uh it's okay just enough to tell the patient you shouldn't be driving for a couple of months and that that couple of months differs with every state um so I, I would advise her not to drive until she follows up in clinic and say, you know, most places three months or six months, depending on what the rules are. If you have no further episodes, then it's okay to go back to driving. Okay. 
So you put all that in a note um, and you go back to bed. Mm -hmm. And what actually happens is because it's pretty late and some things are still being done, um, they admit her to the medicine service overnight mm -hmm. on the floor. Yeah. Now, around 3 a.m., um, a rapid response is called. Mm -hmm. And you go up to this patient's room and the nurse says that she had pressed her call button because she felt funny. And by the time she got there, she found her shaking. And when you arrive, you do see her in bed with rhythmic shaking of all of her extremities. Um, what do you do? Okay, so if, if she's seizing, so I, I always tell people when, when you see somebody having a seizure, it's very important to look at your own watch because you wanna be able to time it. Um, around two minutes is when I start calling for medications. So um, always watching somebody have a seizure, it always seems like it's longer than it is. Um, but around two minutes, you know, I would ask the nurse to grab some Ativan or lorazepam, one or two milligrams, usually two. Um, and then uh, by five minutes, you really want to stop it. The, the definition for status epilepticus, it used to be 30 minutes um, a long time ago. Uh, no one's waiting 30 minutes anymore. <laughs> uh, but around five minutes is when you're going to call it a function, um, uh, the practical uh, definition for status epilepticus, and you want to give the lorazepam at that time. So you would wait maybe a couple minutes before treating. Now, realistically, by the time you get to a patient like right. this and they call, that's it's probably already, happened, right? Exactly. So like, uh, and I tell the residents this, um, you know, you get there, they've probably been seizing for a couple of minutes already, so you just get the Ativan at that time. Yeah. Okay. Um, now, uh, a kind of sleepy resident walks in the room and he says, you know, uh, she's like a psych patient. Maybe these are pseudo seizures. What are your thoughts? Yeah, so, you know, you there's no way you can tell. Well, there is a few ways. Um, but in general, most people can't tell if it's a pseudo or a non-epileptic seizure versus a epileptic seizure. There are some tricks you can do. There's these... Uh, you know, hold their hand above their face. Uh, if it, if they drop it and kind of miss their face, sometimes that clues you in that it's non-epileptic. Um, the treatment is actually the same initially. You know, benzodiazepines will stop both of them. Um, so I would treat it as if it were an epileptic seizure until you can prove otherwise with an EEG. Um, it's better to do it that way than kind of let people go. Now, some people will announce, if they know they have non-epileptic seizures, they say, this is a pseudo seizure. I'm having a, while they're do while they're shaking, and that you can get away with not <laughs> treating. Um, and always remember, this is very important. Always remember that uh, non-epileptic seizures is a conversion disorder. It's not people faking it. They can't help it. Most of the time, people who have this, they've had a lot of psychological trauma. So you want to have a, a certain level of compassion for them, and you know help them through it. They, a lot of times they've been told already that they have non-epileptic seizures, so they know and they just can't help it. So you, you try to still treat them as best, as best as you can. Okay. So your first line approach will be benzodiazepines. You mm -hmm. use Ativan, mm -hmm. it's lorazepam for yep. the international folks. Yep. And how much would you start out with? Two milligrams. Okay. You give two milligrams IV. Now, what if the patient has no IV? You can give uh, IM um, diazepam. I think it's five milligrams or so. So that's something that they would give in the field as well. There's also some places will have intranasal prep preparations or rectal preparations. Um, so that's something you can do if you don't have an IV. Okay. Yeah. So you give 
you're at event up front, and then and then what? How long are you waiting for a response? It it uh, works pretty quickly. So within half a minute or so, you should see something. Once the once it's in the vein, uh, it just has to circulate, and then it works pretty quickly. So I would wait, and uh, usually the convulsion should subside, and then you watch to make sure it doesn't come back. Because sometimes, if it's bad, it it can come back. So you'll wait yeah. maybe a minute, and if they're still convulsing, you would give more. That's right. How much? Another two. Okay, another two. And how many times are you going to do this? Uh, I the it, the book uh, by the books you're supposed to give up to 0.1 milligrams per kilogram. I find around six milligrams in a benzodiazepine naive person. That's when they start losing their airway or you know lose their ability to pre- protect their airway. So that's you know once you give the third dose or so, you're thinking maybe I need to call anesthesia or start intubating this patient. Will you ever lead with more than two up front? No, I, I usually just go by two. Yeah. Okay. And are you thinking about giving any other anti-epileptics at this point? Yeah, so once once I get uh, up to a couple of doses, this is all happening concurrently, as most of these emergencies are, uh, I would start uh, calling for an uh, anti-epileptic. Now, the classic one is phenytoin or phosphenytoin, and the dose would be, if this is status epilepticus, the dose you're thinking of is 15 to 20 milligrams per kilogram. Uh, phosphenytoin is actually... Um, probably preferred over phenytoin. And the reason for that is uh, phosphenytoin is the prodrug of phenytoin. And you can, it's, it's kind of funny you would give the prodrug as a preferred agent. And the reason for that is phenytoin, when you infuse it in the vein, can um, crystallize and cause a syndrome called purple glove syndrome uh, if you infuse it too quickly. Uh, so the phosphenytoin does not do that. So you can actually infuse the phosphenytoin quicker. Uh, and then um, while you're doing any phenytoin infusion, you should be having the patient on a monitor because uh, the phenytoin works on a sodium channel and it can cause a re- cardiac arrhythmia. So you want to make sure they're in a cardiac monitor. Recently, there has been a study that came out. It's in the New England Journal. It's called the ESET trial. And um, it's it was trying to decide if any other agents can be used for status epilepticus. So they used uh, levetiracetam, and valproic acid uh, or um, phenytoin. So they, it was a head-to-head trial for status epilepticus. And uh, the, the outcomes for that was that they were all pretty equal in their ability to, to control seizures. So um, sin, you know, since they've come out with that, you can have some evidence-based, um, uh, evidence-based um, uh, that's where I'm looking for evidence. <laughs> evidence <laughs> for uh, using these other agents. So, what at this point, what are you using? I I usually go for phosphenytoin because most people are familiar with it. Um, if you were in a place that didn't have it or it, was, it would be a delay to get it, you can get uh, levetiracetam. The dose for that is uh, sixty milligrams per kilogram, and the max would be four and a half grams. Um, valproic acid can also be used. That's 40 milligrams per kilogram, and the max for that is uh, 3,000 milligrams as a bolus. The levetiracetam seems popular. Yes. It, yes is I, that just because it's easy to yeah, use? Yeah, so it, you know, when it first came out, it was only FDA approved for uh, adjuvant therapy for seizures, but everyone started using it all the time because it has a low side effect profile. It doesn't, you don't have to monitor liver enzymes and kidney function, so it's an easy drug to use. And I think a lot of ED provider, providers especially just kind of go for it. And 
um, what I've you know what I've seen is sometimes if they if they want to load it they'll do kind of like a baby load of a thousand milligrams. Um, that's not the kind of load you want to do if they're in status epilepticus. You really want to give you know three or four grams of it to to really get a hold of those seizures. Okay. So this would be something you'd be giving. Really, you would give it right up front if you had it in the room and right. it's initially a seizing patient. Yes. They're not going to be someone who gets better on a benzo and then goes off without an antibiotic. Right. And in the study they did two doses of benzos and then the seizures are refractory to that, then they go for one of these drugs. And that's, that's, a, that's pretty, it mirrors real time what you would do. You're giving the benzodiazepine a couple times and then by the second dose you're like, let's, let's order the anti-epileptic as well. Okay. So for this patient, let's say you give four, maybe six milligrams of Ativan you load them on phosphanitoin, mm-hmm. um, and she stops shaking. Mm-hmm. Uh, she's unresponsive. Mm-hmm. Now what? Uh, is she intubated now, or no? <laughs> she uh, she got better <laughs> okay. at kind of as she was. Okay. So uh, if she's protecting her airway, you know, I I would call for a EEG. Now that that may be hard sometimes in some institutions, it's difficult to get EEGs at all hours of the night and day, but that that would be the best because you. It's, it's good that she's not convulsing anymore, but you don't know if she has non-convulsive status epilepticus. So um, that the EEG would be the only way to really tell. There are some hints maybe on the physical exam if her pupils are fixed, you know, that might clue you in that she's still seizing. But otherwise, you just need to get an EEG. So reactive pupils are a fairly good indicator that yeah, she's... Yeah, but it's not... It's not uh, a hundred percent either. So, but it's just a clue. If her pupils are fixed, then maybe she's still seizing. Okay. So you order an EEG, yeah. but um, the tech is not going to be available until the morning. Right. So what do you do with this person? This that is hard. Um, so I I would I would have to see how she comes around. So it could be medication related that she's very groggy or just post post kind of sleepiness. Uh, I would bring her to a monitored unit somewhere. You know probably the ICU where they can do hourly neurological checks. Um, and if she's starting to come around, I'm a lot happier. If it seems like she's not really waking up at all, you may have to just treat her empirically for her, that, that she's still in non-convulsive status. And that would mean uh, using anesthetics. And that, that would mean you have to intubate her. So you can use something like propofol or midazolam. How long would you give her before you started thinking about that? I would probably give an hour or so, um, thinking of you know which drugs did you use, you know if you how how much benzos did you use and what the half life is of you know each one and you know in your experience you know should people start waking up after this many this many benzos. So you give her Ativan maybe about after an hour. If she's still doing nothing, then you're starting to worry more. Right. She is still seizing. Right. Okay. So. Let's say that does happen. You yeah. give her an hour, maybe a little more. Um, she's still doing really nothing. You have her there in the ICU, and you feel like you have to treat her for yeah. non-convulsive status epilepticus. Um, so you're going to innovate her. Right. Does it matter what drug they use to induce her? Uh, so, yes. So um, the, the thing I'm more worried about is the neuromuscular blockade that you use during intubation. So if you have a longer-acting neuromuscular blockade, just make sure that you have the anesthetic ready to go immediately. You never want to forget about it and ha- leave someone paralyzed and you know possibly still awake. You know, 
this patient probably is already out, so they may not remember, but just in general, that's a good rule of thumb to... Would you favor a short-acting paralytic so you can yeah, watch for seizures? Yeah, I would. Yeah. But, you know, it depends. You know, a lot of anesthesiologists may not want to do succinylcholine for, you know, quote-unquote neuro patients. But if there's no ICP issues, there's no uh, brain, you know, I assume you scanned or there's no, no mass lesion, then it should be fine. Okay. Yeah. And do you care what anesthetic they use? Uh, so, so I actually, initially I don't. So, you know, there's a lot of debate. Propofol versus midazolam are usually the go-tos. Um, you kind of just pick which whichever one would fit your uh, side effect profile. So uh, midazolam may have a larger t- um, distribution later on. You know, it can take a longer time to wake up from it. Propofol usually is a quicker on and off. But if it's some someone you plan to use anesthetics for a long time, propofol can run into a problem with infusion syndrome, uh, propofol infusion syndrome. So uh, you kind of just plan ahead. What do you have available? You know, usually propofol in, in the U.S. You know, probably easier to get in the ICU setting, but um, either one is fine. So, they innovate this patient. You would probably start with propofol. Yeah. Okay. And how? What are you titrating this to? What kind of doses are you looking at? If you have no EEG, it's kind of hard. You know, you kind of guess. Um, you, I would, I would go for a rasgol. You know, and it's it's difficult in this case because they started off with a low rasgol. So, um, overnight until we get an EEG, I just try to put them down. You know, usually around forty or fifty is when people are well sedated. So that's probably where I would go. Okay. And if if they were on midazolam, that's hard to guess too. You know, so. I, I would probably start off with five milligrams an hour for midazolam, um, but that's it, it's up to you know the hemodynamics of the patient also, and you know your guess your best guess of how well that medication is controlling the seizure. Okay. But the the absolute goal is make sure they're not convulsing. You know, so right. convulsive status epilepticus is way more dangerous than non-convulsive. Uh, any any level of anesthetic should calm down the non-convulsive ones, but if you're visibly not seeing any shaking, that's fine. Awesome. Is that just because if it's convulsive, it is a kind of more severe seizure? Yes. Yeah. Okay. So the kind of doses of anesthetic you're using are in the sort of range we might use for routine sedation, but right. kind of at the higher end. Right. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. All right. So you put this patient on, let's say, propofol. They're running at 50 mics per kilo. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you are finally able to get your EEG. Mm-hmm. So you're going to put a patient like this on continuous EEG? That's right. Yeah. Can you manage them with intermittent EEGs? It's harder. Um, I I think. I mean, it's it's. Uh, I think it's a lot a lot more work to do intermittent. You have to put it on and off. It takes you know forty five minutes to hook up somebody. Um, but in places where they don't have that capability, that's kind of the reality. Sometimes it's. I would I would tra- if you're concerned about status epilepticus, um, the gold standard is to do continuous EEG. And if you can't do it at your facility, you should think about transferring them. But if, if you have to do intermittent, you know, that, that might be okay if you're on a steady dose. Um, but it's harder, I think. Okay. So they hook up the EEG, and how is this changing your management? Uh, so you can titrate your anesthetics now to the EEG. So um, the there's two schools of thought. You can either give enough anesthetic to suppress the brainwaves all the way and have maybe around 80% suppression with 20% bursts. Um, the, the reason for that is you want uh, you want the sedation to be good enough to suppress them, but not so sedated where they have no brainwaves. 
you just want to you you don't want to overdose them. So a couple of bursts, you know, twenty percent or so that that's enough to say okay, that's a good dose. The other uh, school of thought is just give enough anesthetics to suppress the seizure. Uh, either way is fine. Um, the teaching is you suppress them for a day or two, twenty four hours to forty eight hours, uh, all the way to, to whatever level you feel comfortable with, and then. Um, emerge them slowly and see what kind of brain waves come out as the anesthetics coming off. Uh, if they still look uh, epileptic, then you may want to put them down again for another 48 hours, or some people say double the time, and add more anti-epileptics on the background. Okay. Yeah. So this patient, you have them on their propofol, say, mm -hmm. you still see seizure activity. Mm -hmm. You would introduce another agent? Yep. Or you would can. you go up on your propofol? You can you can do both. So I would I would uh, go go up on your propofol to suppress them to whatever either eighty percent suppression or seizure suppression depending on how their brain waves look. Uh, add another agent, and you you pick the second agent based on their side effect side effect profile. You know, with their comorbidities and things like that. I think a lot of us have started to limit our propofol doses for yeah. fear of propofol infusion syndrome. Right. Would you go higher in a case like this if you need to? I would I would add a second agent. You know, um, if you're maxed on propofol, you add some midazolam. You add, have two drips going. Okay. And how high will you go on something like that? For propofol? Uh, midazolam. Oh, oh, there's no ceiling. <laughs> I've, I've, I mean, the most extreme I've gone, I think it was like 50 or so, something like that. Uh, the, the, the problem with status epilepticus is the more you seize, the more your brain will learn to seize, meaning that your GABA receptors will downregulate and your NMDA receptors will upregulate, so your drugs won't work as well. So you would essentially go up on your midazolam until you were happy. You wouldn't cap out at some point and try to yeah. introduce some the, other The rate-limiting step is your hemodynamics, you know, so you'll probably need some pressors and that kind of thing. Um, and then you know, you, you pick your poison. You know that it's going to hang out for a while, the higher the dose and the longer you have it on, and um, you kind of plan ahead based on that. Okay. And are you introducing other anti-epileptics? Yes. Yeah. So, uh, you know, say you started off with phenytoin, then you're going to add something else. You can pick whatever you want, you know, levetiracetam, valproic acid. And if you use phenytoin and valproic acid, you got to monitor the levels because they they compete with the P P450. Um, you can add, you know, uh, look, Vinpat, you know, whatever, whatever anti-epileptic you can think of. And you just keep adding each one and hope, hopefully, you know, their seizures get controlled when you emerge from the anesthetic. So what's your trigger for adding a new anti-epileptic? Uh, if, so if they are still having epileptic, um, waveforms on their EEG, when you emerge from the anesthetic, then you add another one to try to control it. So you're titrating your yeah. drips to kind of acutely control their EEG, and then right. you're introducing these longer-acting agents exactly. to keep them controlled That's as you right. lighten it up. That's right. Yep. Okay. All right. Um, any role for, let's see, ketamine, barbiturates, yeah. volatile so, anesthetics? Yes. <laughs> so uh, usually people go for propofol and first, and then the the third agent I like to use is ketamine because it's favorable hemodynamic profile. So um, ketamine's a great drug for status epilepticus. Um, if, the, if the seizures are re still refractory to three drips, um, you can do things like hypothermia. That works very well. Uh, and then the barbiturates that, uh, that you would use is pentobarbital. Um, 
that I, I usually leave that for last. It's it, it was a classic drug for status epilepticus, but it has such bad si uh, side effect profile that I try to leave it for the, the last ditch effort. Um, it has a half-life of days, you know, like four days or so, and once you start it, you, you realize it's going to be in the system for a long time. It causes um, cardiac uh, issues, it causes uh, ileus really badly, um, you can have infections, so it, it just is a dirty drug, and it's um, but it works. So it, it, you really shut down the brain with barbiturates. Okay. Uh, what kind of dosing of ketamine would you be looking at? Um, I think you... Uh, it's. I think it's about one and a half or so. It's. It's. It's a good, pretty good dose. So one well into like a yeah. kind of general anesthetic yes. dose. Yeah. Okay. Um, now a patient like this who came in with maybe a, a new seizure and progressed to have status, does that denote the need for any further testing? Yes. So you always want to, you know, the, throughout this whole episode, you're trying to figure out why. Um, you know, you're you're going to be doing MRIs, you know, so uh, to see if there's any mass lesions that's causing this, and then you call your friendly neurosurgeon if, if it's necessary. Um, it may be some post-infection or infectious issue, so you will do LPs. Um, and then from there, you're, you're investigating this whole time. So if, if you find that it's encephalitis or infectious encephalitis, you're going to treat that. If it's viral, you support them through. Um, you may you may need to, if it's autoimmune, you may have to do some plasma exchange or IVIG. So this whole time you're trying to figure out the etiology. Are you doing an LP if there are no other signs of infection? Yes, you would. So yeah. routinely a yeah. patient like yeah. this. If you, if you can't figure out why they're in status, I would do a lumbar puncture. Okay. Um, okay, so you start weaning off your drips, you seem to have control of your seizures. Um, are you going to continue the anti-epileptics you've had them on at this point for kind of the medium to long term? Yes. Yeah. So until they emerge from the anesthetic, uh, you, you want to keep piling it on. Um, and then long term, you know, weaning them off will be something that they do over a long period of time like an as outpatient. an outpatient. Yeah. So, we're so not whatever they're on when they get controlled, you stay on. Right. Are there any changes to the long-term management or I guess the prognosis in a patient like this given that they've had status epilepticus versus sort of a simple seizure? Yeah, they're more likely to have epilepsy after this. So say, you know, this patient never had seizures before, they're likely to have epilepsy afterward and so it's going to take long-term management. They're going to probably be on some sort of anti-epileptic for the rest of their life or the long, you know, long future. Would you expect to find some secondary cause for a seizure in a patient like this, or can they just purely have cryptogenic epilepsy? Um, a lot of, so I don't, I'm guessing about half of the patients, you never figure out why. It's probably some sort of post-infectious encephalitis, some, some autoimmune thing that you know we, we may not have tests for yet, uh, but there's a good chance you'd never find out why. Even in a yeah. patient with quite severe status. Yeah, right. Yeah. Okay. But from the history, sometimes, you know, they had a viral syndrome a couple of weeks ago, and the only thing you can figure it's the post-infectious thing. Brian, what do you think? Any questions? Uh, no, I think we've covered things pretty well. Um, I think this is a this is a good critical care and non-critical care topic, right? I get a lot of calls uh, when I'm in the neuro ICU from neurology interns on the floor uh, who wants some help dealing with this and kind of when to manage the patient's airway and when it's okay just to keep giving them benzos. Uh, so I, th I think that is a good good part of the discussion. Right. 
Yeah, and you know, you have to tailor it to your patient. Some patients are very tolerant of benzodiazepines, so, you know, I've seen people get, you know, way more benzos and they're fine. <laughs> so the airway yeah, issue is yeah. kind of just watching your patient. If the patient's yeah. still, I mean, they seem to be doing all right, can you keep going? You can, yeah. It, it, there's going to be some sort of ceiling at yeah. some point, but yes, you can. <laughs> all right. Any other final thoughts that you want us to take away on this? Um, I think, you know, the, the final thought is if you're treating someone with status epilepticus or super refractory status epilepticus, like we're talking about here with multiple drips, multiple anti-epileptics, the, the key thing is to be patient because sometimes it this can take months even. You know, I've had a patient I've shared with you before that was in my neuro ICU for five months with, with super refractory status epilepticus. And it takes a lot of tinkering, a lot of patience. Um, you know, you, you there's other things you can try. You're not just the things we mentioned. There's ketogenic diet. There's other, other things that are more experimental. There's... Uh, you know, trigeminal or vagal nerve stimulators out there. So there's, uh, the, the key thing is being patient. You know, a lot of times in critical care, we're not as patient. Um, you want things to resolve quickly, but this could be a weeks to months long process. So, you know, don't give up hope. If there's, if there's still brain tissue to save and you're, you don't have terrible side effects, keep going. Would you expect yeah. a lot of neurologic sequela from, after a course like this or yes. can do okay? So the, more, the, the reason we're treating all of this is the more you seize, uh, neurons start to die. It's, it's too much you know, oxygen demand for the brain and uh, your, your body can't keep up with that. Neurons will die. Uh, the longer this goes on, um, you know, you can see brain shrinkage. You know, someone that started off with a normal brain and months later their brain tissues, you know, drastically decrease because of all the neurons that have died. So uh, you try to get on top of it, of it as quickly as possible. There's new guidelines in the Neurocritical Care Society that you got to treat this within an hour, like half hour if you can. So as quickly as possible. There's no none of this waiting around, you know, let's, let's wait till the morning to call neuro kind of thing. You really want to jump on this. So for most of these patients who have been in your ICU for weeks, so the challenge is not getting them to stop seizing. It's more keeping them out of it. You can't wean them. Is that? Yeah. That's long term. That's the challenge. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So it's not like they're actually seizing for weeks and weeks and weeks. Oh, it, it is. If, if you're, if you turn off the anesthetics, they're still seizing. That's the problem. But they're not seizing while they're on their drips. Yeah, they, I mean, yeah, exactly. So the, you're on the anesthetics, they're not seizing, but you can't get okay. them off because they're still seizing underneath it. Okay. Yeah. Well, I think that'll do it. Um, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me.